We're on? All right. Welcome, everyone. It's uh, 7.15 in the Eastern Daylight Saving Time Zone here. And uh, so we're ready for the Gospel of John, week 11. Thanks for coming and tuning in if you're watching on the live stream. And I got a cough drop in my mouth here, so I have to bear with that a little bit here. And let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, thank you again for <clears throat> the goodness that you've shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray as we study his uh, death, crucifixion, that this will be reminded again of what a great price he paid for us in dying for our sins on the cross and making us, uh, making a way for us to be redeemed and brought into your family and then have this great hope of a future with you. So we thank you for all this and we ask your blessings on us tonight as we begin again. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at chapter 19 tonight and uh, this is the uh, trial before Pilate. And so uh, we, we follow this diagram a little bit. Number one, we saw the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he was taken to the palace of the high priest. And uh, that was number two. Number three, um, so uh, John doesn't record the Herod Antipas thing. but So we're here in numbers three and five, which is the palace of Herod the Great, which had become, you know, Herod's dead, the residence, the Jerusalem residence of the governor of Judea. Uh, the governor of Judea's actual residence was really in Caesarea, but uh, he would come here, remember we said, on special occasions when he thought there might be problems in Jerusalem, festival days, feast days, so he'd come and he residence would be here at, the, uh, at this praetorium. At the, praetorium is the Roman name for a, the residence of a governor, but the old palace of Herod the Great. And uh, if you look at Jerusalem today, I started to bring a picture and show you that, but you can't see much. But on the western, that same wall is still there, that uh, western wall. And if you ever go there, they'll show you. You'll look at the buildings there and you'll see this is where it was. And there's, there's more different buildings over obviously 2,000 years, but it's in that same location, the palace there, the Praetorian, and then Palace of Herod. So we're looking at the trial before Pilate, and last time we were looking um, at uh, the accusation in verses 28 through 32, and, uh, and John, Jesus was sent to Annas and then Caiaphas, the high priest, and Caiaphas sends him over to Pilate because they want to get him executed and they don't, the Jews don't have the right of capital punishment. They have to get the Roman governor to agree to that. So they take uh, Jesus over to Pilate in verse 28 and uh, they make an accusation against him against Jesus, uh, um, 
they said, uh, well, they, they, you know, Pilate says, why'd you bring this guy in here? What, what's, what, what's, what's going on here? And they say, well, I mean, if he wasn't a criminal, <laughs> we wouldn't have brought him. Why do you ask that for? He's obviously, a, must be a bad guy because we wouldn't bring him. And, uh, and Pilate says, hey, just, just take him and examine him yourself. You know, don't, don't, I don't want to fool with this kind of thing. And they say, well, we have no right to execute anyone. And so, uh, so Pilate brings him in. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you know, is that your idea or is that somebody else's? And they go back and forth. Um, and, and, and Pilate says, am I a Jew? Can I, I'm not. He's really infuriated that he's being having to deal with this situation with Jesus. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, you know, my kingdom's not of this world and so forth. And Pilate says, well, are you a king? And, you know, and so forth. They go back and forth on that. And then Pilate comes out and says to the Jews, remember, they go to the palace, but in the courtyard, they don't go inside to where Jesus is because that would be contamination in a Gentile place. Jews didn't go into Jewish buildings, into, into Gentile buildings, and that's still true really Orthodox Jews when they're getting ready for something because you have to purify yourself so many days ahead. And so they didn't want to uh, contaminate themselves by being in a Gentile place. In the Gentile place, you've got Gentiles eating food that's not kosher. So the whole place is contaminated uh, and so forth. So they... Uh, they uh, Pilate says, uh, you know, um, I don't find anything wrong with this guy. Pilate would just like to so not have to deal with Jesus and so forth. And so he says, he says, well, you know, it's the custom that um, I release one prisoner to you at the time of Passover. Kind of a thing like we have presidential pardons and stuff like that. Well, the governor would pardon somebody, you know. And so do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they say, nope. <laughs> We don't want him. We want Barabbas. And Barabbas was this notorious kind of a, uh, an outlaw, a, a, a resurrection, uh, an insurrectionist person. And uh, he had taken part in an uprising and so forth, as the text says. So that brings us then to, uh, we, we see the verdict in verse uh, 40, that is, we, we don't want uh, G, we don't, we don't, Jesus won't Barabbas. And then we see what happens next, this violence, 19, 1 through 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. So here, the violence exerted against Jesus consisted of a flogging by Pilate's order and mockery by the soldiers with Pilate's permission. This flogging might at first seem surprising since Pilate had previously declared Jesus to be innocent. I find no basis for a charge against him in 1838. The context shows, however, that having Jesus flogged is probably a new strategy to ultimately set Jesus free. Um, Pilate, uh, 
orders a flogging, which he thinks will meet the Jews' demand that Jesus be punished and perhaps evoke a little sympathy for him as well and thus dissipate the calls for crucifixion. Uh, Luke records in his gospel uh, that, uh, you know, that Pilate says, Jesus has done nothing. He says he had done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. So, uh, so Pilate's already concluded, this guy hadn't done anything. I'm just going to punish him and then release him. And that'll satisfy you and so forth. You know, he thinks that'll handle the problem. I say, if we compare John's account with the synoptics, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it seems clear that Jesus was actually flogged twice. Once before he is sentenced and once after. Now he's not, I'm talking about the sentence of crucifixion that's to come. Pilate will give his blessing to crucifixion. But he's flogged right here before he's sentenced to crucifixion. And then he's flogged after he's sentenced to crucifixion. There's, there's two flogging. The flogging in John 19.1 that we're talking about here is equivalent to this punishment in 23.16 that we see right here. That he's, he didn't really find any fault, but he's going to flog him anyway. It's what the Romans call the fustigation. The Greek, there's a Greek word for this, mastigao. So this is a certain kind of flogging. This is the least severe flogging given for, for light sentences. Temple, temple, typically accompanied by a severe warning not to commit the offense again. Jesus received another flogging after Pilate sends him after Pilate sends Jesus to crucifixion in 1916, which is recorded in Matthew 27:26. Then Pilate released Barnabas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So this is a flogging that you know doesn't kill you. It's not designed to kill you. Uh, it's sort of like the Jewish punishment that Paul says five times I endured, I endured the 39 stripes minus one. I mean, it wasn't designed to kill you. I mean, it, sure it was very painful and, and all that, but it wasn't designed to kill you. As we'll see, the second flogging is really designed to almost kill you. So he has him flogged uh, uh, the first time. Um, I say uh, the Greek word for flog for the second flogging that's used in Matthew 27, 26 is different from this earlier one that we're talking about now, John 19, one before the verdict of crucifixion. The second flogging was the Roman verbatio, verbatio, a different Greek word, which was the most severe form of flogging always associated with another punishment, usually capital punishment, including crucifixion. In this form of flogging, the victim was stripped naked, tied to a post, and then beaten by several torturers until they were exhausted, or the commanding officer called them off. The favorite instrument was a whip whose leather throngs were fitted with pieces of bone or leather or other metal. That wouldn't be what would be used in that first flogging. You'd just be talking about leather flogging, you know, but... Uh, so you could survive that as Jesus does. Uh, so these second flogging were so savage that sometimes people just died, you know, of this severe flogging. Uh, I mean, people who have witnessed, who I, eyewitness accounts of this say it was so bad that, you know, you could, 
people's bones would be showing or the entrails would be exposed. You know, it was just terrible. So the mockery by the soldiers was not only a vicious and unwarranted attack, but was also a ridiculing of Jew Jewish messianic ideas. The soldiers had heard of a Jewish hopes for a king, and they showed their contempt for what they considered to be a laughable idea. Probably the crown of thorns was twisted together from the long spikes of the date palm, fashioned into a mock imitation of the radiant crown's God kings were depicted as wearing. The intention of the soldiers was rough mockery, but the long thorns up to 12 inches added. I should have brought a picture of that, but I did bring a picture of what they were trying to do here. So you see in pictures from Oriental kings this kind of crown with these spikes going up, radiant, kind of like sunlight lights kind of thing. That's probably what they were doing here. You, say, you, you might think, well, they're doing it for punishment. Well, they are too, but it's kind of a crown. They're trying to say, okay, king of the Jews, here's your crown. This was a common kind of crown that you see in Oriental kings. And especially later, I've got a Roman picture here, but later, not at this time, but later Roman emperors adopted this same kind of crown too with these the, their spikes going up like that to be the sun there, like the sun, the sun god or something, you know. And so that's probably what's doing here. They're mocking him by giving him this crown. We know that, but we wonder what the spikes were for there. They're probably trying to mock that and say, here's your crown, here's your kingly crown. Well, let's look at the public clamor here, 19, 4 through 7. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, here is the man. Uh, it's like saying, look at this pitiful guy. Here's this guy that you're so, you know, this is that Latin ecce homo that you see uh, Catholics talking a lot about and so forth. They see that phrase, but Pilate steps out of the praetorium to address the Jews. He delivers the same verdict of innocence and then presents Jesus, who is obviously swollen, bruised, and bleeding from the cruel thorns because Pilate is aware that it's the people who must choose the man who will receive his pardon. He presents Jesus as, as a beaten, harmless, and rather pathetic figure to make their choice of him as easy as possible. Pilate sarcastically says, here's the man, that is the man the Jews claim is so dangerous and serious. And he's really, he's really ridiculing the Jewish authorities here. I mean, <laughs> here's your guy that you think is such a troublemaker, such a problem. Look at him. I mean, he's nothing. Verse 6, as soon as the chief priest and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me... I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. While trying to find, make the Jewish leaders settle for the release, Pilate finds them becoming more adamant in their shouts for execution. They tell him you know, what they want to do. They want to crucify him. He reminds them who is in charge by sarcastically telling them, you know, we go do it. You do it. I mean, they, they both knew that 
this required pilot's authorization, that they really couldn't do it. The goading of the Jews by Pilate brought from them the true nature of their charge against Jesus. <clears throat> Before they had presented certain civil charges to Pilate, which they thought would sound more serious. Uh, this is from Luke's gospel. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be Messiah, a king. Now they admitted that the real cause of their hatred was his claim to be the Son of God. This is, you know, the charge. They remember earlier they took up stones to stone him when they, when he kind of, when they realized that was the claim. So, you know, this is this is the charge of blasphemy. This guy is claiming to be the Son of God or God. This is blasphemy. Leviticus twenty four sixteen requires stoning. For someone who does this kind of bla who claims to be God or blasphemes God, which this is blasphemy. So, this is their real charge here that that they really are upset about. I mean, they don't really care about paying taxes or you know subverting Rome or you know, they have no real love for Rome or they don't have any love for Roman taxes. But they're just trying to you know they're just trumping up charges to get the Romans to to act. Well, the renewed questioning, 19, 8 through 11. Then Pilate, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he began, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if you were not given, if were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So when this charge of claiming to be the Son of God was made, there followed some fearful questioning by Pilate. You know, what we think is it's a superstitious fear, but he was sobered for a moment. You know, what is this claim here? You know, apparently he's fairly superstitious. Although Pilate was not spiritually capable of discussing the matter of Jesus' origins, our Lord took the opportunity to remind him that even a Roman governor's power was not absolute. That, you know, if it wasn't in God's goodwill, God's providence, that he really wouldn't have any power at all. Um, yet Pilate's guilt in violating justice was not as great as that of Caiaphas. We assume he's talking about Caiaphas here when he says, the one who handed me over to you. Uh, because... Uh, Caiaphas, who in spite of possessing scripture, had rejected Jesus and turned to a pagan judge to cry out as he would. So Caiaphas was better equipped. He had greater knowledge. He understood what he was doing with Jesus. Pilate doesn't really know what's going on here. He's just uh, being led along by these people. So he's guilty. <laughs> you know, we think of Pilate as the great arch criminal. He ordered the execution of Jesus. But Jesus says uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, is really even more responsible for this kind of thing because this would never have been brought to Caiaphas, to, G, to Pilate, if the Jewish authorities, Caiaphas the high priest, hadn't, hadn't, done, hadn't uh, uh, brought this matter before him. Well, finally then we see the sentencing in the uh, next section, 12 through 16a. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. 
Pilate was convinced that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death, neither the charge of treason nor the additional charge of blasphemy held up in Pilate's eyes. But when the Jewish leaders introduce a new issue that exposes the weakness of Pilate's authority, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. So this is the thing that gets him concerned here, I think, is we know from historical records that Jewish authorities had complained about Pilate. They complained about a lot of government to the emperor. Uh, you know, they had various complaints. They would complain about him and so forth. And the emperor was always suspicious of anyone who might challenge his authority. I mean, and they would kill you off in a second, you know. So here is a guy over here in this troublesome province who's claiming to be a king, and Pilate, you're not doing anything about it? You're just, you're just going to let him go? You really? I mean, hey, wipe this guy out, you know. He's, he's claiming my authority or something. So I think that that, uh, that was concerning to Pilate, uh, and we see it, it makes him move when he thinks that, uh, well, this could be a problem politically for me, you know. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. So once Pilate is confronted with the Jewish leader's warning, he yields and brings Jesus to the official place of judgment. I should say a seat located, not said a seat located at a place called the Stone Pavement. Some say Gabbatha means um, an elevated place. That's not certain. We're not certain what that exactly means. But we assume it's, you know, it's, uh, it's here. It's somewhere right at the Praetorium. There's, if, you read, if you read about this, you'll see some historic, some difference of opinion. Some have thought, maybe over at the Antonio Fortress there at the north side of the temple, but most people think we are talking about somewhere around the Praetorian itself. Um, no one's really uh, been able to prove one way or another, but that's what the common thinking is. And here it says it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. That means the Passover was already passed, remember. Uh, they had the Passover meal on Thursday, uh, this is a, another time where Passover means the Passover week because we so, showed before that the word Passover is used many times to refer to the whole Passover and unleavened bread. So, so this is Friday we're talking about, the day of preparation uh, uh, for, the Passover, for, uh, for Saturday. It's a day of preparation of the Passover. So... Uh, this is uh, still fr this is the Friday of the Passion Week. So Jesus has had the Last Supper with the disciples on Thursday, and he's going through this. We're going through the night now, and uh, now we're getting to about noon on Friday, right now. Uh, Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, "Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him!" Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest shouted, answered. Finally, Pilate handed them over to be crucified. So he's giving the order permitting crucifixion. 
saying, here is your king, Pilate taunts the Jewish leaders, knowing that he cannot escape the political trap they set for him. If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Pilate's tactics only infuriate the crowd who demand Jesus' crucifixion. Now, I mean, the Jews did not really believe what they're saying here. We have no king but Caesar. They, <laughs> they certainly didn't recognize, really. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, God is Israel's king. Now, they have human kings. They're vassals. David is the king, but all kinds of scriptures. I didn't go into that, but, you know, God is recognized as the king. He's the theocratic ruler, and he's, he's really the king, and you've got a, a human ruler underneath, you know. So they didn't really believe this. We have no king but Caesar, but, you know, they're, they're again pressing this point that if you let this guy go, you're no friend of the emperor, and and you could be in trouble. So he says, in effect, okay, I give the permission to crucify him. And then we see the execution of Jesus, 1916b through 30, the crucifixion. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, uh, there they crucified him and with, and with him two others, one on each uh, side and Jesus in the middle. So you can see on this map here, this map of Jerusalem, number six, Golgotha. This is the traditional location here outside the city wall there. Um, uh, is where we most likely think that it occurred. Most people think that it occurred. Um, after a pilot agreed to the Jews' wishes and sent us Jesus' crucifixion, he delivered Christ to the soldiers for this purpose. As I mentioned earlier, according to Matthew 27, 26, Pilate had Jesus flogged a second time, this time the more severe verbatio. Verberatio. Uh, John makes it clear that the procession started with Jesus carrying his own cross. This agrees with what we know of the Roman practice which required each criminal as part of his punishment to carry the horizontal member, cross member, you know, on his back to the place of execution where it would be fastened to the vertical beam. The victim was then tied or nailed on the horizontal beam. Um, should be on the horizontal beam. The cross hoisted up, and then the victim's feet tied or nailed to the upright. Um, you know, uh, the synoptic optals indicate that Simon of Cyrene was commandeered from the crowd to assist them carrying the cross. Here's Luke. As the soldiers led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who is on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Probably he was you know, coming in to this gate here, uh, to this uh, where they went out of the city wall here. He's probably coming in maybe and they commandeer him, 
Because Jesus is so uh, desperately off because of the um, second flogging. Uh, as I say, uh, obviously Jesus had grown faint from the abuse he had already endured. The usual procedure was for the soldier to be given to the custody of a centurion who would lead him and the soldiers to the place of execution. The procession often took a lengthy route through the city so as to attract attention, humiliate the victim, and provide a gruesome entertainment for the crowd. In this instance, they made their way to a place called Golgotha, an Aramaic term meaning skull. The Latin equivalent is Calvaria, found in the Latin translation, and we get the English term Calvary. So we say he was crucified at Calvary. That's just the Latin equivalent of skull. We don't know what skull means in the sense of uh, it may have, you know, some people say it uh, was named because of its appearance, but we have no way of knowing that. Um, but anyway, at Golgotha, uh, Jesus is affixed to the cross with the two other victims to a cross. Uh, I say the exact location of Golgotha is uncertain. Um, you know, I, uh, I put it right here. This is what most archaeological evidence suggests. This is, this, is, uh, this is, if you go there today, this is where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. The Church of, and so if you go to... Jerusalem, you'll go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and Sepulchre, and they'll let you in and so forth. Um, this is, I say here, it marks the spot which has the far the oldest tradition connected with it. It's inside the present wall of the city, but outside the second wall at the time of Jesus. So if you go there today, there's actually a wall that comes to the, comes over here. I should have brought a map of Jerusalem today, but the wall extends out here, so this is all inside the present walls of Jerusalem. And um, if you go there also, maybe I should have brought some pictures, you'll actually, they'll take you to a place here up on this, up here, and in this area, called the Garden Tomb. And uh, it, uh, as you go there, you'll see there's a hill up there from the tomb and it's kind of got the face like a skull. It looks like a skull. And so uh, a Colonel Gordon who came there in the 19th century saw that skull and said, oh, this is the place where Jesus was crucified. He saw that skull and they found this tomb there, the garden tomb. And he said, you know, this couldn't be the place, the whole Church of the Holy Sepulchre, because it's inside the city wall. Well, the truth is, yeah, it is now, but it wasn't then. And so, you know, he'll go, you'll go up there. And if you go there today, it's a beautiful place. It's a nice garden there, and you've got benches. It's very nice. They'll say, they'll say, we don't claim this is the place, you know. <laughs> we don't claim and the truth is, I don't, I don't think it's a place. It'd be nice if it was. Now, the reason why people don't like the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, one reason is because, uh, you know, it's now become a Catholic, Orthodox, Armenian. 
uh, it's just like a holy shrine, you know, and it, lo- it looks, you know, it looks just like a Catholic church would look, you know, just a, a cathedral or it looks worse than, I mean, it's just all kinds of icons, statues, you know, it's just, it doesn't appeal to our Protestant eyes at all if you go there. And so Protestants, you know, they've, they're drawn, Gordon was drawn to that skull he saw up there. There's actually a bus station right there, right beside it now. But, and he thought that that's it. But, and you know, but the tr- tr- trouble is, there's just no real evidence that's true. There's a tomb there, but the tomb is not of Jesus, not of the time of Jesus. It's a tomb, but it, it doesn't fit the, the 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 time frame at all. And uh, the truth is. Uh, Christians have never left, never left Jerusalem in 2,000 years. And so when they built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in the 300s, when Constantine came, they built it, as we'll talk about, they knew where the place was. Nobody, nobody did not remember. It's, you know, we, when something eventful like that happens to a people, they know where the, where the place was and so forth. I mean... It's, 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 it is problematic because you go in there and there's all these people doing all these religious things and things that are not what we Protestants and evangelicals would like, you know. But it's got all the historical evidence. It's the right place. It's the right age. There's all kinds of work that's been done there that confirms all this. They, uh, when you go there, uh, it's disputed, you know, who owns the church. There's uh, Catholics and Armenians and all kinds of other. There's about four different groups that claim, you know, and so they have a door. You go in, and the go- the keys to the door are in the hands of a Muslim guy, <laughs> and he opens it every day and he closes it. Every- so they can't trust the- each other to do it. They have this Muslim guy. He opens the door and closes the door, and you go in. And they've recently, in recent times, for the first time, uh, allowed. They've finally agreed over hundreds of years to allow work to be, some investigation to be done. And they, uh, they, uh, uh, you know, they they dug down, replaced some stuff, and, and everything looks historically right, like what we would expect to do. So anyway, I think that is the right, doesn't really make a difference ultimately to us, but I think that even though we could wish the other, it looks like this is the right place. Uh, this is where, uh, when 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 they built the, the church there, people knew where Jesus was crucified and so forth, like that. So, um, so this is uh, a picture of how people were crucified. Now, sometimes they tied the arms, but what I wanted to call your attention to is what we have discovered in recent days about probably how the feet were attached there. You know, most of the times we kind of see on older pictures, the feet kind of crossed, you know, and kind of something. But we've got some good evidence now that they were actually nailed like that. Here's a picture from Italy of someone being crucified. Those stripes are, those are flogging marks. And you notice, see how the heels are on both sides of the cross there? You see that? They actually found uh, an ankle, a man's ankle with the spike in it from Jerusalem has been found in recent years. 
and he's, he's nailed right through the ankle, you know. So that's apparently more likely how it was done. You had your feet on both sides, and you had a nail in the ankle. Sometimes you tied the arms. Jesus had nails through him, you know, and his hands are probably more in his wrist. The Greek word uh, for hand there can mean wrist too. I mean, they say, people say, you don't have much to hold on to in your palms there, but more likely cl closer down is more likely where it was at, but you know, for sure. So um, that's, that's what we know about the, the crucifixion historically there. And about the, I'll say a little more about the church here in a moment, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, let's look at the inscription on the cross, 19 through 22. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Now remember, uh, Aramaic was the common language of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Uh, Aramaic, Hebrew, Aramaic. Latin was the official Roman language, though not really spoken much, certainly around that area. And then Greek was the international common language of all people around there. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. <laughs> the inscription which Pilate ordered placed on the cross was certainly intended to be an insulting as insulting the Jews as it was to Jesus. It was written in three languages and received wide notice. By this inscription, Pilate was getting back at the Jewish leaders who had harassed him throughout the trial. You know, he's saying in effect that this unfortunate victim is the only kind of king you Jews, you know, will ever have. You know, here's the here he is. <laughs> uh, he's the kind you deserve. Here's your king. Here's the king of the Jews, you know. Uh, they didn't, I mean, the Jews didn't want that. They didn't want people to say, this, our king's been crucified. They want this, oh, this guy claimed to be, you know, claimed to be. We don't take, we don't own him. But, you know, Pilate is sort of making them own him <laughs> by this statement. Uh, I mean, it's tragic that neither Pilate nor, very I mean, amazingly tragic, that nor the whole nation realized that the words were actually true. Here is the king of the Jews and, you know, ultimately when he returns, his kingly status will be displayed for all to see. The wording offended the Jewish authorities and they wanted change so as to indicate that the king of Jews was merely unwarranted claims. Pilate, uh, you know, he'd been badgered enough and so he ordered, inscriptions are going to stand. What I've written, I've written. Well, now we see the soldiers and the women when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. With the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from bottom, top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. So two groups of bystanders are depicted at the cross. The soldiers who had crucified 
who had crucified Jesus distributed his clothing among themselves, which was customary in the case of executed criminals. There were four of them apparently here, and they portioned out the garments four ways, possibly or probably sandals, belt, robe, and headdress. The seamless undergarment or tunic was more valuable than the soldiers threw dice for it. To them, it seemed the most natural thing to do, far more sensible than cutting it into four you know, useless pieces. They had no idea that they had been, this had been prophesied in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a commonly recognized messianic psalm. That is, the things that are said about the king, even the King David, are also prophetic of of. Uh, of Jesus, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. 18. Well, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So the group of bystanders was a band of women. John lists four of them. Um, He lists Mary, the mother of Jesus. He lists Mary Magdalene. I'm skipping down to the fourth one here in the list in verse 25, Mary Magdalene. From Luke 8, 2, we are told that Jesus had cast seven demons, had, had cast seven demons out of her. Well, I really got some mistakes there. Had cast seven demons out of her. In the previous chapter, in Luke 7, there is the story of a woman who lived a sinful life, the text says that wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and poured perfume on them. She says she lived a sinful life, that maybe she's a prostitute, but she's not identified with Mary Magdalene in Luke 8 too. So it's just important to remember that, that in kind of tradition, if people just commonly talk, they'll say Mary Magdalene the prostitute. Well, there's no biblical evidence that she is the woman of verse chapter 7. Now, maybe she was, but... There's no evidence that the woman in chapter 8, Mary Magdalene, (laughs) is the woman in chapter 7. That's just an assumption that's made. So we maybe we shouldn't research her reputation, you know, because we don't have any text saying it. Of course, you know, it's commonly said Jesus married Magdalene, and isn't that the point of the, uh, what's that that book, um, that movie and all that, you know? Uh, What's the name of that? you know, those wrote a couple of books and, you know, that was really famous a few years ago. Help me out here, uh, Larry, you know, I can't remember. <laughs> I thought you guys would be up on this and uh, I can't, just can't remember, but it's a, it was a well-known book, but it claimed that he married Mary to Magdalene and had dis- descendants and so forth. Like The Vinci Code, The Vinci Code, yeah. The Da Vinci Code, that's the premise of that, I think, isn't it? That he married Mary Magdalene, had kids, and so forth like that. But, of course, none of that's in the text here and, or anything like that. So I just wanted to mention her. She's there, but I talk about her, her and her story. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas. 
a comparison with the woman mentioned in with, with the woman mentioned in Matthew 27, 56 and Mark 15, 40 indicates she is the mother of James and, and Joseph, uh, Joseph, who are not otherwise known in the Gospels. I, I didn't put those texts up there because, but if you look at what we have here, Mary, the wife of Clopas, uh, from those other texts, it says she's the mother of James and Joseph, who are not otherwise known in the Gospels. So we, I don't know what we, they're not talked about. Uh, in the Gospels, the one we want to get to is Jesus, the mother of uh, Jesus' mother's sister, and that's what this chart is showing here. Uh, a comparison with the woman mentioned in Matthew twenty five twenty seven fifty six and Mark fifteen forty indicate that she is named Salome and is the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So, if you look at this that chart, you can see Mary is married to Joseph. And there, uh, you know, her son is Jesus. And then Salome is the wife of Zebedee. And James and John are the sons of Zebedee. John's the beloved disciple. So, uh, you know what that means then, uh, as I say here. This John is the beloved disciple, the author of the gospel. That means John would also be the nephew of Mary, Jesus' mother, and thus the cousin of Jesus. So this probably explain, might explain why, you know, at least an additional reason why John, why Jesus commits his mother, you know. I say here, since Jesus' father was probably dead at the time, he's not mentioned at all after the birth narratives at all. So most people think he's passed away. Uh, the disciple, uh, he commits the care of his mother to his cousin, John, the disciple whom he loved. Explain the close connection maybe between them. Jesus' half-brothers were still unbelievers. We saw in 7-5 they didn't believe and were apparently not present at this time. So they didn't believe until after his resurrection. So he commits his mother to John. Well, then we see the death of Jesus, uh, 19, 28-30. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. The phrase, knowing that everything had now been finished, marks the point immediately prior to Jesus' death at which everything that brought him to the cross in keeping with God's sovereign plan had taken place. Even Jesus' cry of thirst is in fulfillment of Scripture. Psalm 69, 21. They gave me vinegar for my thirst. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So the substance called wine vinegar was a cheap sour wine that was used by soldiers to quench their thirst. It differs from the wine mixed with myrrh that Jesus was offered and that he refused on the way to the cross in Mark 15, 23, because it was a sedative designed to dull the agony. So Jesus was fully resolved here to drink the, you might say, cup of suffering that the Father had assigned to him. Um, when his final words, with his final words, it is finished, Jesus meant that the work he had come to do the securing of redemption for lost mankind had been accomplished. 
Then Jesus gave up the spirit. No one took his life from him. He had authority to lay it down of his own accord. He's mentioned that before in John 10, remember. So Jesus dies on Friday afternoon with the Sabbath approaching Friday at, uh, at 6 o'clock or sundown. That's why we call this Good Friday. We talk about Good Friday. This is the Friday of the crucifixion. So it is finished. You know, that's that Greek word telestai you've heard people say. So this is the, this is the great culmination of all he's come to do in this sense of uh, bearing the sins of the world and dying for sins, uh, the punishment that God has, you know, put upon him, not put our, punished for our sins upon him right here. And it's finished in that time. I mean, how he could do all that is not fully understandable, is it? I mean, but he's God. <laughs> he's the God-man. So somehow he could suffer the penalty that we all deserve. Some way that we, I don't fully fathom how he could do it, but he did suffer uh, on the cross. God punished him for, that, that, uh, for our sin. We're so thankful for it. Then we see the burial of Jesus, 1931 through 42. Now it was a day of preparation. That's Friday, remember? And the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders, a special Sabbath because this is the Sabbath of the Passover week. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the body's taken down. Um, so the idea, remember, of the, the uh, uh, I guess I didn't put that here, and I should have said something about that, but, uh, well, I'll say it, that, I mean, the, the idea is that on the cross, one of the problems you would have be would be asphyxiation. You'd have a problem breathing, and so you would have to push yourself up uh, kind of push yourself up in order to get a breath sometimes, you know. And so if you break your, your legs, you can't push yourself up anymore and your, your breathing becomes very difficult, very labored, and it would hasten death. So the day of preparation is Friday, as we noted in verse 14. Next day is Saturday. Here it's called a special Sabbath because it falls during the Passover festival. Uh, festival week. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. This uh, Jewish attitude was based on Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23, according to which bodies of hanged criminals must not defile the land by remaining on the tree overnight. So the Jews, you know, um, um, I got Luke 23, 26. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's Deuteronomy 22, 23. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that day because anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. Remember, Paul quotes that himself uh, in Galatians. You must not desecrate the land, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23. So they're trying to avoid that Old Testament problems here. So they want his legs broken. 
The Romans would leave, we understand, people on the cross for days if they could endure it. And they just left their bodies there because, remember, crucifixion is a cruel punishment. But the people who talk about it, the Latin writers who talk about it say, one of the major purposes was not necessarily the suffering. That was part of it. But it was a public display. Here's what happens when you rebel against Rome. You know, here, here it is. You know, I mean, that was, the, that was the theory in our country when they had public hangings. You know, the idea was, and down through history in Europe and all things, they executed people publicly. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but that they did it <laughs> because they were trying to show, here's what happens to you, you know, if you uh, rebel against the government. And, and this is what the Romans, that's what the, all the Romans letters talk about is crucifixion shows what happens if, you know, this is reserved for non-citizens, really. If you rebel against the Roman government, here's what's going to happen. So they would leave the body on there for days, devoured by vultures. So it was a terrible, terrible thing to see. Um, when uh, when uh, um, they had like slave revolts, uh, when... Uh, what was that movie that Kurt Douglas played? <laughs> Spartacus. Yeah, when Spartacus led his revolt in, uh, you know, uh, famous uh, uh, slave revolt, they, uh, they had these slaves, hundreds of them, crucified on the Appian Way, the main way, just hanging right there as they show in the movie. It was like that. They, they put them up on those crosses and just let people, when you're walking down the road, you see all these bodies, like the main, main road. This would be like putting them down Allen Road or something, you know, and just, so here's, here's what happens when you defy the government and so forth. So uh, verse 32, the soldiers, um, the soldiers uh, therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus than those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he, had already, he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So Jesus was already dead when the soldiers came to break his legs. This would prevent the crucified person from prolonging life, pushing, I've said that before, pushing him up, breathe. Instead, Jesus' speedy death was probably caused by the double flogging he received. To make sure he was dead, the soldiers pierced his side, but apparently the spear penetrated so far as to produce a flow of blood and water. Uh, so apparently they're piercing him to make sure he is dead, you know, see if, what's going on here. Uh, there's various explanations about this uh, flow of blood and water. You hear, you know, medical doctors weigh in on this, I'm, I'm not sure, but your explanations are that the spear maybe went into the heart and you've got some sort of water-like substance around from the precardial sac, you know, maybe that that's what the, the water was too with the blood, but whatever there was this, and that was satisfying to the soldiers that he's really dead. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one 
they have pierced. Uh, there was eyewitness testimony of Jesus' death. The eyewitness was probably, you know, the beloved disciple we're talking about here, John the author. The purpose of this witness is so that you, John's readers, also may believe. And of course, that's what the theme of John's gospel, as we'll see. I mean, we talked about the next chapter, uh, at the end of this chapter, uh, that you may believe. The benefits that flow from the death of the Son, of course, are appropriated by faith. I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing the death of Christ. He's dying for our sins, but how do we appropriate? What's the instrument? And that's faith. And so John says, I've written these things. These things, I'm a witness to this thing so that you can believe. Um, what was particularly impressive was the fulfillment of ancient prophecies at the death of Jesus. The fact that Jesus' legs were not broken was in fulfillment of Psalm 3420. And especially, because there's Psalm 3420, none of his bones will be broken. Uh, and especially the Passover lambs whose legs could not be broken. I didn't put those Old Testament scriptures, but the Passover lamb, that was one of the features. You couldn't break the legs. The piercing of Jesus' side fulfilled another prophecy which foretold that one day the Jewish nation will mourn as they look on the one whom they saw they have pierced. So, uh, you know, Zechariah 12.10 here um, that we quote here, they will look on the one they have pierced. Um, I mean, this, this, the piercing occurs this day at Calvary, but the morning is yet to come. Um, and this is going to be fulfilled. There's some things here about the spear. Uh, the scar uniquely identified Jesus' resurrection body when he appeared in the upper room later, 20. Remember, they look at his hands and they look at his side and they see that both of those. The events in the scar will identify Jesus for Israel when he returns. Uh, they will look upon him, Zechariah says, and uh, whom they pierced. And uh, uh, memory of the event will draw Israel's attention to his crucifixion, perhaps a factor in, in leading the believing remnant to repent and mourning, possibly. So this becomes important as prophetic event here. Um, um, verse 38 here, let's look at that. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and looked and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier had visited Jesus at night, earlier visited at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and the garden was a, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was in the Jewish, the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they, lead, they led Jesus there. So two, members, two men, both members of the Sanhedrin, which had condemned Jesus, stepped forward at no small risk to themselves to claim the body. Joseph had been a secret believer, but now was 
willing to be identified with his dead master. Nicodemus showed by his actions that his prior contact with Jesus had borne fruit. Criminals who were crucified by the Romans for treason were left on the cross, I said that, to be devoured. The fact that Pilate agreed to Jesus' request, uh, Pilate Joseph's request for Jesus' body probably reflects the conviction that Jesus was not really guilty. You know, probably not. Um, burial custom, burial preparations had to be hasty and temporary because it was nearly sundown and the beginning of the Sabbath on Friday evening. So, you know, at sundown, that would be Friday. That's the beginning of the Sabbath. Therefore, they hurriedly wrapped the body in clothes, sprinkled spices among the folds, and laid it in Joseph's tomb, which had been built nearby but never yet used. And the Sabbath was over. After the Sabbath was over, the women planned to anoint the body. So there was a... Luke says, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph, saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Well, I want to show you some slides here, but it's going to take a little too long to explain those. So we'll come back to this next week, Lord willing. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about the tomb against the garden tomb. Maybe I'll, I'll bring you some pictures of the garden tomb so you'll see what people are talking about when you, when you, if you go to Jerusalem, if you go to Israel, you'll go to the, <laughs> the garden tomb. Everybody takes you there it's an, and so forth. And it'll take you to the church or Holy Sepulchre. And God's, God's will not, uh, they will not be definitive about where Jesus was buried because they don't want to make anybody mad. Because <laughs> all the Catholics and the Orthodox, they say the church, but Protestants don't like the church. So they, <laughs> gods are afraid. The Jewish gods are afraid to say, what they think. They won't tell you what's going on. All right. Thanks so much. We'll stop here for tonight and we'll come back to this next week.